Welcome back to another episode of You Have My Interest, the show that helps you make smart moves with your money by giving you tips, tricks, and tools to help navigate your wealth journey. I'm your host, Evelyn Clark, Director and Finance Broker at Everland. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we are recording and you are listening today. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hello, everybody. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and a happy new year. We have a different episode today that I'm actually really excited to bring to you all. I got inspiration for this podcast from one of my favorite podcast um, producers, Ed Milet. If you have not ever listened to any of Ed Milet's podcast, I am going to encourage you to go and listen to him, particularly if you are interested in anything in the realm of business, personal development, mindset, health, well-being. He is absolutely phenomenal. And he has some of the most well-known guests on his show in the entire world. You are bound to have heard of some of the people that he interviews. He is a fantastic question asker as well. And I think that's what makes him such a great podcaster and interviewer. So I got some inspiration from his final 2023 episode. And I thought I would do something similar where we pull some of our key moments from interviews with guests across the 2023 calendar year. So today I'm bringing you five key episodes or clips from five key episodes that we've done with interviews with some of our guests. We're going to start off with Phil Thompson, who is an insurance broker. Now, he specifically does personal insurances, and this is a really, really important criteria if you are someone that has any form of debt, um, in particular a home loan. Personal insurance is something that's not really talked about a lot in Australia, so I do really encourage you to listen to his whole podcast, but we have taken some important clips that go through some of the different types of insurances. We're then going into how to win at auctions with Andy Reid, who is an auctioneer. Then we've got Aoife Horsley, who is a buyer's advocate who runs her own business here in Victoria, and we're talking about how to buy property that stands the test of time. Then we'll deep dive into some information regarding investment properties which actually focuses on all over Australia. So we've interviewed PK on this particular podcast episode who's based up in Brisbane. And finally, from our most recent podcast this year, we've interviewed Andy Lloyd on money mindset and how to actually start to set yourself up and switch your mindset around money so that you can start to think abundantly rather than from a scarcity mindset. So I really, really hope that these key moments from these podcasts today Uh, something that inspire you to either listen to the episode in full or maybe to take some action in your life, whether it be in terms of your income production, whether it be in terms of income protection. Uh, And I really hope that you get something out of this. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Phil and we're going to go straight into these podcasts. We think it's important. So for life insurance, if you've got a home loan, we want to clear that debt and we want to replace the lost income minus tax that you pay so your take-home income minus that debt repayment because if we're if we're clearing the debt we don't need to repay that debt anymore and and it's very dependent on the situation so if you're you know single and no dependents you may just want money to clear the debt so your your parents aren't left with the debt Um, but if you've got a partner you've got kids it's really important to replace income and and clear debt Um, for disability we think about it where we want to clear debt so if someone was to be disabled they don't have their their home loan so we don't clear all debt so we don't think about investment debt as as needing to be cleared and then we want to replace the difference between income protection and your income so 
um, as we kind of touched on before, income protection doesn't fully replace your income. So there's always going to be this pay drop if you're if you're disabled. So we just give you a lump sum or we recommend you take out a lump sum payment to cover that gap if you could never return to work again. And then a little bit of money for medical expenses. And then trauma is similar. We want to cover income for 12 months. If you've got income protection, then we kind of have a, have a formula around that and a little bit of money for medical expenses. And then income protection, we kind of say, let's cover the maximum because like it is only 70% of your current income and most people can't just live off 70% of their current income. Do you think that there is one particular insurance out of all four that is an absolute must that if people essentially could only get one type of cover, they should all, all apply for? Yeah, for sure. Um, income protection. That's kind yeah. of a no-brainer for me because yeah. like most people think about, oh, my house is worth a million dollars. That's really important to protect. Or oh, my car's worth 40 grand. Oh, I don't know. My car's worth like 10 grand. Um, so I don't know what normal Same. people um, <laughs> pay for cars. But, um, you know, I better ensure that. I don't have 10 grand in the bank to replace a car plus the 50 grand in damages I've caused to someone else. Your income's like really significant when you think about if you calculated your income I think a 30-year-old on 80 grand a year between now and retirement, they're going to earn like $4 million a year. Like it's a lot of money. Um, and if you can't earn that money, either for a short period of time or a long period of time, like the technical term we use is like your stuff. Your ability to earn an income will generate and dictate how you're able to then go forward in terms of investing or lifestyle or whatever it might be. So it literally is your livelihood. And, you know, everyone's got dreams of buying a property, dreams of buying an investment property or whatever it is going on holidays. Well, guess who affords the holidays? Your income. Like Mm -hmm. you working Mm -hmm. pays for everything. And so if you can't work for whatever reason, then then you can't have any of those things. So, you know, I always think about or talk to clients about like, yes, go and do all these really exciting things and amazing things, but protect the downside. Like hopefully you never claim on it happy days how good is this you've wasted so much money on insurance that you've never had to use but guess what someone's used that money because insurance companies aren't just pocketing it they're giving it to someone else income protection is number one tbd and trauma is number two and life insurance depending on your life stage in my mind if you're single it's number it's number three for sure um if you've got a family dependence then bang life insurance is super important and so when to do it as early as possible um at the the way insurance works is it's just like um it's just like lending if you are desperate for the cash and you need to get a home loan like how many people have come to you saying oh we really need to get this loan because we're not in a great financial position it's like well we can't get you a loan like it's really difficult because you're not in a financial position where a bank's willing to offer you the, the loan it's the same as insurance get it before you think you need it while you're young and healthy and you'll never need to claim on it Get it then because you won't have any exclusions, you won't have any loadings, and there's no issues of the cover, and it's cheap while you are. Well, comparative, most people haven't spent any like mm-hmm. spent any money on insurance, so it is expensive. <laughs> but it but it's like while you set it up while you're young, it can be quite cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, so then if you have a health event, even if it's not claimed on, it means it's not going to impact your cover in the future. Um, but if you, you know have some you know, medical concerns, you hurt your back, you hurt your knee, then you'll have three exclusions on your policy um, when you do take it out in your mid-30s or whenever it is. And in terms of the different types of cover, in terms of the level premiums or step premiums, how does that work? 
Yeah, so step premiums is like if you go through your super fund, it's always stepped or it actually okay. can be unitized. So within a super fund, it's either cheap today and it will increase as you get older or it's cheap today and as you get older, the level of cover will reduce on you without you asking oh. for it so the premiums don't get too high. So that's okay. called unitized cover. Right. And that's actually really, really not good because uh, the amount of clients I've had like yeah i've got 200 grand in my super fund and we look at their cover and they're you know mid 40s and it's like 50 grand of cover they're like oh my goodness that's nowhere near enough it's ridiculous why would you want to get older and have your ability to claim reduce (laughs) well because super funds make money on investment that's a good point (laughs) we do not want investments to be impacted by insurance premiums because super funds don't own insurance companies so it's just a hard cost to them so Mm, yeah I mean, my cynical view on it. That's Interesting. Sneaky. Um, but so the, then they're stepped, which is cheaper today. But every year you get older, the level of cover is the same, but it gets more expensive because a 60-year-old is more likely to claim than a 30-year-old. So the premiums will be reflected as such. Mm. Now, the last one is level premiums. Um, and you can only really do this through an advisor, um, and which means that you pay more today, but it doesn't increase the cost every year you get older just because you're getting older. Now, there are some kind of caveats to that. If your level of cover increases, either just automatically every year it can go up or or you get a pay rise and you increase your cover, then the premiums will go up because the insurer is paying you more, so your premiums will go up. And then the other one, which has been happening more historically, it may happen in the future, but who knows, is insurance companies at the end of the day, the way they work is they're just a big bank account. Everyone pulls their money into that bank account when people need to make a claim, they pull the money out of that bank account. So if there's more claims than what they anticipate, they need to tell every insurance policyholder, hey, we actually need more money in that bank account. So even stepped, level, unitized, wow. whatever it is, everyone can get a price rise regardless of, huh. of anything else. Within super fund insurance, um, superannuation legislation, now forgive me, I'm geeking out a little bit here when I start talking legislation, <laughs> but super legislation says it's really restrictive to get money out of super. So the government basically doesn't want us to pull money out of super. That's for retirement savings. So keep your mitts off it. And so insurance contracts within super funds are really restrictive because of that purpose. So some really, you know, simple understanding is if you quit your job, you go on holidays to Europe for three months, and then when you come back, you'll get a new job. You injure yourself in Europe and you're not gainfully employed at the time you injure yourself. This super fund just legally can't pay you an income protection benefit. Because as part of superannuation legislation, you're not allowed to pull money out of super if you're not working at the time of the injury. And so that's one of those restrictive terms that it's not because the super fund's bad, not because the insurance company's bad, it's just legislation on super restricts it. So when we structure cover for, for clients, it's we talk about how much can come from super and it can be roughly, you know, kind of as much as you want, but normally, you know, anywhere up to 80, 90%, depending on the structure of your total cover. And the reason why it's not 100% is because some of the features or benefits of policies that we like to set up for clients can't be paid from super. So that trauma policy that we talked about that pays out for cancer, heart attacks, strokes, MS, you know, there's 40 odd conditions that it will pay out on, that can't be paid for with your super money. There are some things where you can have your income protection where most of it's funded from super, but a small portion is paid outside of super. So the benefit of that is if you go and injure yourself in Europe, then you'll still get paid. If you're on, you know, parental leave at the time of claim, you can still get paid. While the super fund 
wouldn't pay you that. Um, and then a little bit of a total permanent disability policy can be paid outside. So normally when we talk to clients, it's anywhere from, you know, it can be 80% of it paid through super and a small portion paid outside. But also at the end of the day, I don't pay my clients premiums. I never do. So um, if a client came back to me and said, look, I don't want to touch my cash flow because we're about to buy a house and that will impact servicing or whatever the reason may be, great. Well, we can set up the policies today and it's all paid from your super. And But bear in mind, there's going to be some restrictions of the policy and then we can add those things later once you've bought the property or once those things are more important to you. Yeah, no, that makes sense. If you're setting up a policy that is paid partially through super and partially through your own cash flow, and then, for example, in that instance, something occurs where you're not able to or you wouldn't have been able to uh, release that money from super if something had happened to you, because it's now been paid via dual purpose, can you still access the full benefit or would some of it be restricted because of that super legislation? Amazing question. Um, and I didn't even tee that one up for you, but um, <laughs> you can you can still access the full benefit. Yeah, so even though a portion okay. is paid through cash flow, the full benefit is payable. Andy Reid is an award-winning auctioneer. In fact, last year he was actually named the Australian Auctioneer of the Year. He is one of only 18 master auctioneers on the REIV. Not only that, he mentors and coaches aspiring auctioneers, and he is also a MC or guest speaker. So he is very, very well uh, accredited in that space. He only does auctioneering, so he's not a real estate agent, doesn't help people buy or sell properties, um, but specifically does the auctioneering for property sales. There's, there's obviously a lot of benefits to an auction in terms of you can really play off, particularly when you're in a seller's market, you can really play off that atmosphere and the competition and that sort of thing to drive the highest price possible. But in your opinion, are there any downsides to an auction? Well, uh, if I was to put my business hat on, I'd say no. You should auction everything. But the reality, <laughs> uh, but the, but the reality is, um, when I was an agent, so I was an agent for a number of years. Um, um, I didn't recommend an auction every time. Yep. Because, and and this is something that I'm trying to coach at the minute, um, and I've been very vocal in in the industry press and so on and so forth. Um, you can't go into a listing presentation with a predetermined idea as to what the right thing to do is because there's one big variable and that's the human that mm. actually owns the joint, right? If humans weren't involved, mm. it was just house, 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 then yeah, you just go, right, we're doing that, we're doing that, we're doing that, we're doing that. But, you know, going in there with a predetermined idea that auction's the best way to go, da, 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 and you see agents go on about it on in the, in the social media and whatnot, that's kind of like a doctor diagnosing everybody with the same thing and prescribing the same medicine to 10 people without hearing all the symptoms. Yeah, okay. You're going to get it right a lot of the time, maybe, but you're probably going to make a few people really ill. Mm. Um, and, in the, and, and the same rule applies with, um, with selecting the right method of sale. Um, this, the, the, there are variables within the human component in terms of what they want to achieve, when they want to achieve it by... Um, what their disposition is like, how experienced they are in this whole thing, um, whether they've got a head for numbers, whether they are emotional people, all that sort of stuff really plays a part because our job is to, uh, it's, it's yes, it's to make the most amount of money out of the asset, but ultimately selling a property is only a vehicle towards a greater purpose. Yeah. And, 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 and so 
realistically our job is to aid them on that journey towards fulfilling that purpose and help to drive that vehicle i.e the real estate transaction in the right direction so that they get there without hitting too many bumps the data and the statistics with the property itself and also the area i think that's fantastic i think you've touched on so many things there and for me immediately it just shows how valuable a buyer's advocate is mm. because at the end of the day, people that are buying their first or their fifth yeah. properties are not doing it on a daily basis totally. like you are. And I, Maddie and I have both used buyer's advocates for all of our property properties. purchases. I'm a big, big believer in it. And it's outside of things, outside of the scope of, you know, you don't have enough time or you totally. don't have the expertise, but all of those factors combined. And then we look at the relationships that you mm. have with real estate agents to be able to find those off-market opportunities yep. or things yep. that the clients don't see themselves are just, to me, screams volumes as to why you'd use a buyer's advocate. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's a really important point is the relationships that we do have. Um, you know, for, for me, I buy a lot in Metro Melbourne, but I also go into the regional areas of Victoria as well. So I do a lot in the kind of bigger regional hubs, Ballarat, Bendigo, Geelong, but also into other areas as well. And what that means, because I'm out there a lot and I've got multiple clients that I'm working with at all times is that I am actually purchasing a lot more property. So those relationships that I have with those agents, they prioritise that. But I also attract clients that, you know, are a little bit older for some reason as well. Again, I don't know why I do. Um, so people who might have lived in a property for 30 or 40 years have raised their kids in that home um, have been out of the market that time and it's a very different game to what it was in the 70s and 80s so you know back then it was advertised in the newspaper and things like that so then for them to want to be selling that family home and potentially downsizing or moving into something a little bit smaller or closer to family or whatever it might be they have no idea where to start and so they seek the advice of an advocate for those reasons as well so they're sort of a couple of the demographics or personas of the clients that I normally do attract or that I work with in the same breath. I work across the full spectrum of people as well. That's fantastic. And you touched on earlier those competitive markers mm. in a property. Yeah. Can you touch on a little bit more as to what you really are looking for in a property that is going to perform yeah. and hold up those competitive markers? So there's a couple of general things. And again, it case by case there's lots of other things that come into it but generally speaking things like a really flexible floor plan really really important right because what that does is it lends itself to living and it lends itself to living whether you're living there as a home buyer or whether you're living you know you're having it as an investment you're going to have tenants in we want that floor plan and how that property actually flows to make sense another really important thing to take into consideration is size now, size does matter in real estate. Um, so there's a few things that come into size and I don't just mean the size of the house or the size of the block, right? We might be looking at a unit, for example, within potentially a complex um, standalone townhouses or units, but there might be, you know, 12 within that potentially strata. Um, so how much of that land, of that overall land, is your proportion of property? And does that actually make sense in the wider kind of breadth of what we're looking at? Also look at things like orientation. Really, really important that um, we're maximising orientation. This comes into play when we're looking at things like natural light. Now, I know that it sounds like, well, why does it matter? You can turn a light on. Well, I don't know if any of your listeners have ever walked into a home and all of a sudden, they just have that feeling of this is really lovely. This just feels really homely. 
often that is actually the way that it's oriented and how that natural light's coming in. So we live in the southern hemisphere, so blocks that say south face north and living spaces that face north are always going to be more valuable than literally the house across the street that faces south. And that's really important. That's about natural light. The size thing as well, to jump back there, um, you know, we talked about size of potentially the land ownership of the land, of the property itself, but often as well the rooms within the property are really important to understand the size. Well, I want to know that there's a demand for tenants in that area or for renters in that area. What's the vacancy rate like? You know, maybe you can go and interview a few different real estate agents in a particular area if you're kind of set on an area. If you have no qualms about where you just want it to perform, then those sorts of portals are really important to get that information and and to understand your personal needs and then trying to find a location based on that. And that's really delving into the specifics of the current market. Mm. But a lot of investors also want to look into markets that are emerging and totally. going to be great. You want to get into a market before it starts booming, yeah. right? So what are the types of markets that you look for in that instance for an investor if you do that as yeah. well? Like I've yeah. heard of lead, lead and lag metrics and things like that too. So again, um, you can do all of those things. There's, as you know, as I'm sure you guys know, there's a lot of information out there and, and there's often areas that are earmarked for growth. Now, what I find risky about doing that, having that sort of a strategy and getting in before anybody else does is that we have no information, no data to test that market against. So if an area is newly established and that's where some of these areas that, you know, are about to boom and, you know, they might be new developments and things like that, we need to understand the demographic of who's going to live there and how can we understand that if the demographic doesn't necessarily exist or hasn't evolved fully. So when I'm purchasing for investors, and this is advocate by advocate, there are some advocates who will do it differently and that's okay. There's enough room for all of us. Um, I really prefer to purchase in established areas for those reasons. I don't like to purchase in areas that for some reason have out of the blue. It's happens. It's happened previously in Mackay in Queensland and Mackay, the same thing's happening now. There's another boom happening up there. Um, But it happened about 15 years ago when they pulled a mine out as well and in WA with the mining town. So we need to understand what's going on how long that's going to be in place for. And yeah, everyone wants to get in when it's low and then sell high, right? That's that's what we all want to do. But it's actually about that due diligence and understanding what you're doing before yeah. you do it. So it's about obviously looking at the numbers. Yeah, but totally. if you do see a sudden spike in the numbers, you need to be able to interpret that data exactly. as to why it's occurred. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And so then if we're looking at, okay, so we've identified some potentially um, growth corridors yeah. or some areas that yeah. we're interested in investing and we've looked at those overall market mm-hmm. trends. Um, you mentioned new development areas mm. as opposed to established towns, let's call it. Yeah. What about new builds versus established builds? Can you can you talk a little bit about that? And I see a big smile yeah, on your face. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm very passionate about established property versus new. Why, Eva? Why are you passionate about <laughs> and established I, And I'll property? tell you, um, uh, and again, uh, this may not be the sentiment of every advocate out there. So I say this is this is where I place myself and this is my niche. Um, new builds can be amazing and they can be all of those things. Again, 
we don't have anything to test that particular dwelling against or that particular area against, right? So free me becoming an advocate or a buyer's agent. I worked for a number of years um, with property solicitors and also in owner's corporation management. So I spent a lot of time at VCAT, um, you know, with matters pertaining to dodgy builders who hadn't built products correctly or they were building defects or there was lots going on. They might have, you know, there's an old saying, the DDD, which is dead, dissolved, disappeared. Often... One of those three things happens to a builder and how do we chase down someone who's done a shoddy work if they don't exist anymore, if we can't locate that company? Often those companies have a multitude of creditors. Don't need to get too much into that. But the whole purpose of what I'm saying is new builds and new developments are great and we've seen them work. So I don't want to sound like I'm being completely negative against new areas. I'm not. What I'm trying to achieve with my clients is things that we can actually assess historically and then understand how we how that's going to project into the future. Things like new developments um, and new areas are all beautiful and new and shiny and we love that. But they're also carving up farms next door, right? There's still land that can be carved up. Your brand new, new and shiny thing today, well, there's going to be another 5, 10, 20, 30 of them built next door it's about supply and demand. If you can walk back in, if you're looking at a property and you love it, my thing to people that I always say to clients is... Welcome, PK. So great to have you today on the podcast. Thanks, Evelyn. Good to be here. Just want to touch on a bit more and that's leverage. And you mentioned that, you know, the stock market in particular had a lack of leverage. So for those that potentially don't really understand the difference in investing in shares versus investing in property and how you can make that leverage work for you. Can you touch on a little bit about that and how maybe it helps you kind of, you know, really project that well creation quicker? Yeah, sure. I mean, essentially it's quite basic. Like let's say you've got $50,000 and I think when you are young potentially, you know, you see online and perhaps your family and friends, they invest in stocks and maybe they had a great year and it goes up 20% and everyone's like high five each other. Fair enough, right? So 50,000 to start with, it goes up, let's say 10% or 20%, that's five or $10,000, which is, you know, that's good. But if you take that same $50,000 and you apply leverage on it, leverage meaning you get a loan from the bank, the bank can probably lend you, I'm just making this up, round numbers, $300,000, okay, if you've got an adequate income and things like that. And so then you can add your three hundred, your fifty thousand dollars to that three hundred k loan, and you can go out and buy a property for three fifty thousand dollars. And let's say that increases, let's just say ten percent, just to be conservative, after even just one or two years, then ten percent on three fifty thousand dollars is thirty five thousand dollars. So the stock market went up by ten percent, gave you five thousand dollar return on fifty thousand dollars. Uh, the property market went up 10%, you got $35,000 return on your same initial $50,000. So obviously 35 is 30,000 more than just 5,000. You started with the same, but cash on cash return is higher in the real estate market. And of course you can leverage or, or you can gear up in the stock market as well, but no bank is going to consistently allow you to 
take out 80% loans or, you know, only require 20% deposit. It's more like 50% loans that they give you, whereas in the real estate market, they give you, I mean, these days, even up to 95% in some instances, but to be safe, around 80 to, to 88%. And so for me, looking back on it, it was like, it was just a no-brainer. Intuitively makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, buy as close to the CBD as possible, buy close to water, whether it's a beach or, or lake or river, buy close to a train station, buy close to a shopping center. Um, buy in areas where people are wealthy. You know, right. all of these things make a ton of sense um, if you think about it for like 30 seconds. But then if you spend 30 minutes or 30 days analyzing it, you actually find that these things have no correlation whatsoever with capital growth. Yeah. And I think people are only starting to realize that now because we have such a plethora of data. So we can actually take a topic like, yeah. proximity to CBD and be like, okay, has a suburb, let's say in, in the Brisbane context, has a suburb like uh, Red Hill, yeah. which is not too far from CBD, perform better than a suburb like, I'm just going to make this up, North Lakes, all right, which is quite far, or Petrie, which is, you know, in the Morton Bay Council, is quite far from the CBD. Yeah. And if you look at it over 30 years, you find that they perform basically the same. If not, yeah, sometimes okay. further out, they performed even better. And that's not just case of Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney. It doesn't make sense intuitively, but it actually is correct if you look at yeah. the data. So I think to talk about what you should look at, first of all, you need to like plow the field and get rid of all the stones and your existing predispositions and biases of what works. I think yeah. we grow up and we need to kind of unlearn a lot of these things that perhaps our parents or society tells us. Yeah. And so that's exactly what I did when I invested in, in real estate, especially my first property, because I didn't want to make a mistake. So what I found was there's actual statistical metrics, and I'll go through a few of them in a second, that have a clear correlation or clear uh, causation with property market growth at the suburb level, okay? Yeah. So, for example, one of them is days on market. Days on oh. market is just a fancy way of saying how long does it take from when a property is listed, like on real estate or domain, to when it's sold, either yeah. when it contracts are exchanged between the buyer and seller or when it's unconditional, i.e. the buyer has to go through and buy that property. Now, if that's like 90 days or three months, then that suggests that, look, Properties are sitting around. There's not. There mustn't be that much demand, right? There mustn't yep. be that much heat in the market. But when, like in Perth right now, the average days on market is nine days. That, right. that includes all the crappy suburbs as well. So that that suggests that it's such a hot market. Just properties are getting snapped up, and that suggests that property prices are going to rise. Now, that is a demand side metric. Just because something is strong on the demand side doesn't mean prices automatically go up. You might find the supply is also through the roof, and so therefore those two cancel out each other. Right. So a good uh, supply side metric is stock on market, just like we had days on market, stock on market. Stock on market simply says that in a suburb, what percentage of houses are for sale. So if you have, let's say, 100 houses in a suburb and five of them are for sale, then that's 5%. Now, we generally want that to be less than 1% or 1.5%. So you could have like a suburb that is taking 90 days to sell 
that stays on market and his stocker market yeah. is like five percent that's a recipe for prices to go down but if yeah. the opposite is true then prices go up so of course you can't just rely on two yeah. metrics but if you look at many of these types of metrics not to overwhelm anyone but there's about 30 35 mm -hmm. metrics that you can kind of sink your teeth into then, then you can like it's like the mona lisa it's so nuanced you can really paint a real nuanced picture of what a particular city a particular lga or local government area or a particular suburb is doing and therefore by with confidence knowing that you know it's not just off a whim but it's actually based on data yeah fantastic and is this what your um, your course actually looks at? All of these different metrics and data? Yeah, this is. I mean, this is kind of the heart of of what I teach. But I think yeah, um, these what I've just mentioned is so. Even though it may not seem simple initially, you don't need to do the course to you know it had the highest population growth of anywhere in Australia. Yet property prices were basically flat. Once again, going back to what I said before, where things that you think matter like population growth don't actually matter as much as you think so what Brisbane then did from 2020 to 2022 is it went up like literally almost 50 percent it kind of caught up all of that stagnation that pressure build and it went up so much and then when interest rate rises occurring from 2020 the Brisbane property market corrected by about eight percent and then this year in 2020 since about March it started to go up. So I think Brisbane's already recovered its correction. It's already back at sort of almost new record levels. And from this point onwards, it's interesting to see what will happen is because demand is very strong on the Brisbane side. So anyone who's trying to buy a property, like it's pretty hard in Brisbane right now. Um, as we go into summer, more and more listings come on uh, for sale. That's just a seasonable attribute of spring going into summer. And so it's it's to be seen whether the the prices will continue to rise because if a lot of listings come up, sure there's demand, but the listings absorb all that demand. So I think Brisbane has got a lot of potential. We just want to wait and see potentially one or two months how the supply side pans out. But if the supply side doesn't uh, actually absorb that demand, then I think 2024 could see. I mean, I'd, I don't want to like create foam or anything or, or kind of hyperbolize anything, but we could see pretty significant price rises in Brisbane. Um, you know, saving if interest rates go up again a number of times, then of course it may not happen. But if interest rates only go up once or twice, then I think Brisbane's got a good year coming in 24. In, in terms of Sydney, that's been the best performing market out of any capital city in 2023. And that's in part because it was the worst performing city in 2022 because of interest rate rises they impacted sydney more than other capital cities because in sydney the affordability is the lowest it takes on average um, more than 50 percent of your income just to service your mortgage in sydney which is like just ridiculous um, so i think sydney once again if interest rates don't rise again too much then it, sydney will continue to do well um, but once again, the affordability story can't be ignored. So I think there's ups, more upside than downside to Sydney, but it has to cap out in the next one or two years. It can't go on like this forever. Um, Melbourne is a very interesting one. It did decline because of interest rate, but not as much as Brisbane and Sydney in 2022. Leading up to the 2022 period, 
Melbourne didn't really experience as much of a COVID boom as other capital cities, and that's in part due to a fairly weak state economy. And of course, um, folks had a, a bigger and longer lockdown um, in Melbourne than in other places around Australia. And now coming out of the interest rate cycle where other cities are starting to rise in value, Melbourne is too, but at a sort of sluggish rate. And that is because the state government has basically penalized property owners in a big way um, down in Victoria with land tax increases and other ways in which property investors are sort of thinking, hey, uh, it's just not worth it from a numbers perspective to invest in Melbourne. So from that perspective, I don't think Melbourne will fall in value, but I don't think there's the best opportunity there over the short term. Adelaide has just had like a terrific period. You know, Adelaide grew more than Sydney. It, Adelaide grew more than basically any capital city between 20, uh, 2000 and 2010, all right? And then from 2010 to year 2020, Adelaide was like just dead flat. When I say flat, like 4% per annum, below the average nationally of about 7 to 8 and then since COVID, or actually starting in 2019, Adelaide started to go up and it's gone up more, more than 50%. It's kind of top heavy now. I mean, affordability is still stronger than Sydney, but in Adelaide, people, people don't like that kind of affordability. People in Sydney are kind of used to it, in Adelaide, they're not really. So Adelaide is still chugging along. Interest rate rises have had little to no impact on both Adelaide and regional South Australia. But, you know, after a market grows by 50, 60, 70 percent, there's got to there's got to be a time where there's a slight correction, a breath, uh, you know, of just just stagnation or consolidation. That's just how property markets work. So I think it's a bit too late to invest in in, in Adelaide at the moment. Um, regional South Australia, there might be opportunities. Perth is a really interesting one. Everyone, not everyone, I shouldn't say everyone, a lot of people look down upon Perth because historically in the last decade, it's been very volatile. They experienced two mining booms, and then it was a huge decrease in value around 2023 to, uh, sorry, 2013 to 2015. And then from that, it's just been really stagnant. It started to rise in 2021. And right now, Perth is the fastest growing capital city under $600,000. That's really interesting. And, you know, everyone thinks that Perth is a mining town. However, now it's more diversified. Uh, the property market is going up, not because of investors. In fact, in Perth, there were 220,000 rental properties um, at the start of COVID. Now, at, not even at the start of COVID, two years before now, so around 2021, now there's 200,000 rental properties. So the investor investment or rental property pool has shrunk 10%. So what's driving Perth property prices right now is owner-occupiers. And when owner-occupiers drive prices, that's a recipe for a boom, not a bubble. A bubble goes up, then bursts, comes down. When it, it occurs by owner-occupiers, it's a sustainable boom. There's record migration. In fact, Perth has the highest population growth, um, both uh, international and interstate um, out of any capital city. I just said before that population growth doesn't matter um, for for price growth, but if those people are actually buying to live, then that actually hits the demand side. So that's the kind of um, that's that's the kind of, I suppose, dynamic of Perth. And I think Perth people or Western Australian people had the second highest incomes in Australia 
whereas property prices are one of the lowest of all capital cities. So there's a lot of afforded, latent affordability. So even if interest rates rise, people in Perth, I mean, generally speaking, are like, you know, whatever, we can afford it, it's no problem. So um, from a Perth perspective, I'm very bullish on that for the next one or two or three years. And in fact, over the next decade, if we just zoom out, I think um, based on looking at the data, Adelaide, um, Brisbane and Perth, if you sit here, we had this conversation in 2030, I think those three cities will have done the best. And just to round it off, I know I've missed a few places, apologies, but just to round it off, we talked about yield before. It's these three cities that have the best yield. So it's a kind of a, I suppose, a, I don't want to say golden opportunity. That seems a bit too hyperbole, but it's a, it's a good opportunity to buy in these three areas where you don't have to sacrifice yield like you do in Sydney and Melbourne, um, but you're going to get the best growth likely over the next uh, decade. Yeah, wow. I love that. Um, uh, sorry, it's I a lot. I just want you to keep lot, talking. Lot to I, feel like yeah. I just want you to keep telling me information. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah, that's probably like the reason I like listening to you talk is because you give the real raw numbers. You're not you're not just sort of going off. You can tell you're not just going off assumptions. You have actually studied this data. Hi, Andy. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. <laughs> Good to be here. So, you know, on my peak there, I was probably earning 170000 Yeah. But I still had no money. Yeah. I had no assets. I had a nice house and I had a nice car and I had a nice life. But it was, you know, it was just flowing through me. Yeah. And, yeah, it sort of culminated at a point when I lost the job and I just started to get into self-development. This was when I was 37, 38. And I was exposed to some coaches in particular who were earning, you know, I think I really realized that there was a mindset. Yeah. That I had a mindset behind money. I'd inherited an education behind money. I had certain beliefs of what I thought was possible that weren't necessarily true. Mm. And I decided to just stop and take a look at all of it. It all was put on the table yeah. of what beliefs do I have? What do I think is possible? How is it possible to live? Um, is it possible to earn a lot of money for not a lot of hours in return? Some people do it, so why couldn't I do it? Um, and it was all just put on. Yeah, so all these beliefs that I didn't even really know that I had became more ideas and frameworks. And then I, I sort of let a lot of stuff go and then hence setting that goal, like, okay, so here I am I'm in this position. I was in a lot of debt. I'd, I'd spent quite a lot on self-development. Plus I had other debt. I was probably 70,000 down. In, this is personal. That was personal yeah. debt. Yeah. Um, but I was investing hard in education Yeah. and I was really working hard on myself. And... Yeah, and I set myself this goal to be financially free to retire by the time I was 43. That was that was my goal. And I was going to figure it out. One way or another, let's go and work every day. And yeah, and that's, that, that, that was the journey. And that, that way of thinking set in motion a whole journey that shaped me to this day. And, you know, I missed the year by one year. I was 44 when yeah. probably, you know, like I can say that I, I can retire if I want. I, I'm yeah. still working, but like there is enough pass. The way I define retirement is to have your passive income running ahead of your expense. So that if I did decide to stop working, my life would continue not to the same level as if I'm on a wage, but it, yeah. I, I, everything's taken care of. Yeah. It's fine. The passive income's ahead of my expense. 
And that, that is the case, and that's been the case for over six months. And I just turned 45. So, you know, things are in great shape. Mm. I, I still have new dreams and, and new things that I want to do. So, and that's been part of the journey. Um, yeah, but that's, yeah. but it, it was driven very much out of pain and out of being incompetent yeah. and not wanting to look under the bite of my life. More of a shame around earning the money or the fact that you were. I just didn't know how to do it. Yeah. I didn't know, you know, I didn't really want to live within my means. Honestly, I wanted to just have fun, but I wanted nice assets and I wanted freedom and all these things. I, yeah. I sort of wanted it all. I didn't, I didn't really want to be told that I had to get control of stuff. And, yeah. and you know, so it was easy to push it away. But then I would look at where I was in my life and where my friends were, with mm. their houses, this, that, and the other. I was, yeah. I just I had no idea. Like the idea of $100,000 was inconceivable to me. Because if I had five grand in my back, I felt rich, you know, and I'd, I'd go and do something fun with five grand. So a hundred thousand or buying, saving for a house, all these kind of things, mm. the numbers were just fantasy Yeah, at that point in my life. Yeah. So how did you start to shift that? One of the first things that I really remember doing was, uh, I read it in the compound effect, uh, talking about um, habits that compound and he made Darren Hardy makes the point I think he's he has a personal assistant or something and, and she's maybe in a similar position to me yeah. you know, he just has that track yeah. don't make any changes but just write down everything um, and that made a, quite a big impression so I was I was already on the path and I was like okay no changes necessary but and I, I got a little black book and I wrote down for probably three months every yeah I know and I, I after the first day or two I really began to enjoy it, and I. But for the first time in my life, I was really feeling and looking at where the money was going. Yeah, and I'm. I have a meditation practice, and what I was doing, and what I believe strongly in, is awareness. And awareness is real power. It's a tool. It doesn't do anything as such, but to have awareness and to yeah. be aware is the starting. Totally. I want to jump back a little bit to money psychology and mind yeah. a little bit. So, um, we've had conversation in the past about uh the way that you often talk about money as energy and that sort of yeah um i'd also be interested to know if you ever unpacked your own money story and if you kind of ever went down that path uh, well let's start with energy okay so i definitely i think i feel like humans have created something that mirrors nature yeah and that's how it is and um, it's it well it it's almost impossible not to do something that mirrors nature because we are part of nature. Yeah. And I, I there is a, a sort of a spiritual aspect for one of a better phrase, one of a better phrase to money. And one of the big things for me was when I started giving to charity. Yeah. So I got control of my expenses, but I also carved out money to give to charity mm. as part of that taking control of things. And I reckon it was around that same time that things began to go even better yeah like i had no money i had only debt and began to give like and, and tony robbins told me that he was like don't people think it's easier to give when you've got a lot yeah it's really not it's harder to give the big numbers than the small numbers you, you will be a scaled up version of who you are now and that made a big impression on me so i began to give 10 percent years ago and that relaxed me so much and it brought me into gratitude and the opportunity that relaxedness was invaluable because the opportunities flow and you see them much better when you're relaxed. Yeah. And if you're allowing 
yourself to have control but be relaxed with money and be cool, then you feel your opportunities in a different way. I think the big change for me was like, if I do think of it as energy, I don't, you know, I think about this a lot. Like how many apples are in the world right now? X amount. How many could there be? Well, that depends on how many trees you plant and yeah. how many, like, and then how they do, what the weather's like. And and it's a bit like how with money, it, it, it's a thing. It's, a, it's more, it's not fixed anymore. Yeah. There's credit. There's different ways of it springing to life. There's so much more money in the world now than there's ever been at any point. Mm. And it depends on what ideas we can come up with and how we can express ourselves and, you know, all these kind of things. So, yeah, I've unshackled myself from a lot of that scarcity stuff. Mm. I've tried to have a healthy mindset around it. Yeah. I try to think like God. Yeah. I try to think my, my analogy used to be spinning plates for my life, but that was quite stressful and hectic. Yeah. And now I think of money as like a garden and I have to, I have to be the gardener and I have to look at the garden and listen to what everything needs. What does my business need? Is it, or is it fine? Is it just happily doing what it's doing? And, and what about these houses? And if there's a space maybe for me to plant something new, like, and then I'm tending this garden, which relaxes me and I enjoy. Yeah. And yeah, I find it quite beautiful. I and mean, it is quite therapeutic. Yeah. So that's, that's, try, that's how I try to think about it most of the time. Yeah. As opposed to this scarce resource where nothing can grow or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think that energetic tie to it as well. Like people often think, and this is where risk is, is hard. So if people lose money, mm. they associate it with what they had to do to earn that money. It's not right. losing 10 grand isn't just losing 10 grand. It's I had to work so hard to save that 10 grand. Yeah. And that's emotional. Yeah. I think this is maybe what we were talking about the other mm. day, but like it's so you, you really, you've really lost all that emotion, all that hard work. Yeah. No, you just lost 10 grand. Yeah. And what's the lesson? And yeah. What did you learn from it? You've got, you're going to fail on this journey. Like, and controlling those losses is, is what we need, but we need to make a lot of mistakes. Because to learn anything takes a lot of mistakes. And to grow a business takes a lot of mistakes. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of You Have My Interest. Remember to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. To find out more about how Everlend can help educate and empower you to achieve your goals with finance and property, just visit everlend.com.au forward slash podcast and book in a free discovery call.